Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the co-main event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for the last 10 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, we had nothing but stoppages at this UFC Fight Night event on Saturday night that went down at the Apex Arena in Las Vegas. Of course, Jamal Hill emerges with the TKO victory over Tiago Santos in the main event. Jeff Neal, TKO victory over Vicente Luque in the co-main event. Didn't need the cards at all here. No judges' decisions on the prelims or the main card. They said on the broadcast, this is the second time in modern UFC history that this has happened, that there's been no decisions on the card. Uh, that's that's really something. That makes it feel, uh, you know, monumentous a little bit when you get these uh, these fight night events that sometimes don't feel that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, a bit of a kick in the nards for those of us out here tr- real, still trying to hit that bet that a fight will end via majority or split decision. Because, Jed, if the shit doesn't even go to decision... Uh, I'm kind of screwed from the get-go. You know what I mean? It doesn't even give me a chance. Of course, you're talking about the $20 we never want to see again feature that we do over on the Patreon Friday during the Power Hour. You like these bets where you bet on a fight, a specific fight to end in majority or split decision. Uh, You might say you jinxed it because didn't you have three bets this last weekend? Well, Three different bets that there were going to be split or majority decisions. And then you get zero decisions on the card for just the second time in modern UFC history. Hard to call that a coincidence as far as I'm concerned. Well, got my money back on one of them because one of those fights was scratched. Didn't even happen. So uh, also made all my money and then some back with two other bets I had on this one that hit. Uh, I was in the black this week, my man. I know we'll do a full rundown uh, on Friday's Power Hour over there on patreon.com slash co-main event. But uh, I don't know how you did. I'm, I feel pretty good. Didn't even need to hit the split or majority decision bets. Still cash those tickets. Money, yeah, money, both, money. You know what I'm saying? We both wound up in the black this week for maybe the first time ever in the $20 we never want to see again uh, betting 
contest. Of course, yours was tainted because you admitted nope. flat out on the power hour that you went and cribbed another man's bets. Uh, you copied shamelessly off the paper of Dan Tom, mm-hmm. MMA junkie, I believe. You know, uh, Chad, analyst. Look- you're just out there. Uh, you're like Dennis the Menace leaning across the aisle of the uh, of the classroom, furiously scribbling the same answers that Dan Tom has on his page. Uh, just hoping that that you'll hit. So you I don't know how proud it. you can. I you don't know how proud you can be about to it. See me happy, successful, and thriving. I mean, you when people tune it. in for a for a betting contest that is supposed to be us making our picks, and then one guy, oh, one guy has the 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 big brassy ones to make his own picks, and the other guy <laughs> is over here copying the, the work of known ones. sharps. <laughs> coming in here and then on then on monday is gonna sit here and be like oh i made all my money back blah 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 you well you something? better send 20 percent of it to dan tom because you didn't do shit you didn't do jack good artists borrow chad great artists steal yeah well you're nothing if not a great artist when it comes to putting down other people's money to win to win these bets you're stealing from dan tom it's shameful it's what it is shameful shameful cr- all the way to the bank we crowned a couple of ultimate fighters on Saturday. Muhammad Usman, the brother of Kamara Usman, is your heavyweight winner. And then you had Juliana Miller, was your women's flyweight winner. She beat uh, Brogan Walker Sanchez and then got up you. and gave the DX crotch chop yeah. over the top of her fallen foe, which I know is probably something you can, you can get behind. Yeah, I did appreciate whoever it was, whichever reporter it was in the post-fight press conference who was, when she was like, oh, yeah, no, this, this is my, like, sort of homage to Generation X. And, they, and then he was like, what year were you born? And she was like, 1996. And he was like, okay, I think Generation X formed in 1997. So, like... <laughs> Have we come all the way back around like the like the way, you know, you see the kids out there these days wearing the Nirvana T-shirts and you're like, okay, I guess. So it's vintage now. Guess we're old. Guess that's how we found out. Yeah. Uh, This fella that Muhammad Usman knocked out in the heavyweight final, Zach Paga, uh, we got a, a lengthy video vignette about his dreams, about how he had he had played one season in the NFL and now it was his dream Every to be an UFC MMA heavyweight, fighter. Every heavyweight, it seems, played one season in the NFL. Yeah, he's, now he's out here. His wife's holding it down, watching the babies. He quit his job so he could be out here trying to live down his dream of being a UFC heavyweight. And then uh, he has a really good first round. Mm-hmm. And then Muhammad Usman just kind of clips him with a little bit of a counter left hook right on the middle of the face. And uh, this man was knocked out cold. For a while, for a time. Well, yeah, I mean, it looked like he might be able to do the zombie Undertaker sit up there until he sat right up into the follow-up hammer fist from Muhammad Usman. Looked like he was uh, operating a jackhammer out there, trying to crack open this man's skull to get to the sweet, gooey goodness inside. And then you're like, okay, he's probably not getting up now. That's probably it. We can call it. Yeah, he's, he wasn't getting up for, for a long, a long time there. Give that man his uh, cut glass trophy now. Remember, you're listening to the co-main event podcast proper. Don't forget to go out and follow us on Instagram at CME if you nasty and like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash co-main event. This show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines and your podcast libraries. But if you think we're having fun right now, you absolutely need to check out what's going on over at Patreon.com slash co-main event. Ben Folks and I are party rocking over there with three additional podcasts every single week. 
You can check out the Wednesday live chat, hashtag wild on Wednesday, where we spend a full hour answering questions, comments, and concerns from the people, from the beloved patrons of the CME. We've also got the Friday Power Hour podcast, which is an additional hour of curated MMA talk. It features the dreaded but amazingly named Coming Event Podcast Patreon Power Hour Power Rankings. And then, of course, on Thursday for the true heads, the top tier patrons of the Coming Event, we got doing the damn thing. That is the show where we break down all the non-MMA related content we think might be of interest to our listeners. It's a lot of fun. We have three handy tiers of patronage available. Frankly, you can get in the door for $1 a month. That gets you access to the live chat. Head on over to patreon.com slash co-main event. Check us out over there. Fun stuff happening all the time. We got music this week from old school CME listener, Kyle Kelly Yonner. He also happens to be a drummer of tremendous skill. Did I tell you Kyle was in town the other day? He rolled through Missoula uh, with a band he was on tour with. And uh, we tried to we tried to get together. We tried to see each other, but we just missed him. And uh, he went around and did all the, a bunch of fun stuff here in Missoula. But I was really hoping that... Uh, that we could meet up, but we didn't get the chance. Oh, so well, that's cool. Next. Thanks, Kyle, for reaching out to me and saying, what's up? That's cool, man. Didn't, uh, even, know. Probably, didn't even know you're you, in town. That's all you right. You were too busy copying another man's bets to come hang out. Uh, Kyle has a, a solo project out. It's an EP of instrumental tracks, mostly drums and synth. I think it's pretty cool. If you like what you hear from him on the show this week, you can find the rest of that EP at his website, kyleky.com, or follow him at kyle ky drums over there on instagram three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one jamal hill out brawled tiago santos and jeff neal out dueled vicente luque so that's interesting that's fucking interesting man and in round number two why do people keep thinking it's apparently a good idea to make mike tyson super mad at them First some rando on a plane, and now Hulu. What's really going on with Iron Mike's life story? And in round number three, hold on. Cheeto Vera and Dom Cruz are fighting this weekend? The fuck? All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. This week's listener mail is once again brought to you by our friends at Fulton and Rourke. Tons of cool stuff going on all the time over at FultonandRourke.com, purveyors of the finest grooming products that money can buy. I use them. Ben Folks use them. I, I got them in my shower right now. Yep. I was just in there a couple hours ago using the uh, the body wash, the shampoo, the face wash, slathering on a little Fulton and Rourke deodorant when I was done. You know what I like about Fulton and Rourke, Ben, is that most of their containers are refillable. Yeah. So you get you get to the end of your deodorant. You can just order a refill. They send it to you. You pop it in this sleek black metal bullet, basically, that you're using to apply your underarm deodorant. And it's no no waste. You know, you're cutting way down on the waste that you would with these ordinary grooming products. You get done with your deodorant with something else. You just throw it away. Not this one. You reload. That's all you do. I appreciate that. The earth appreciates that. And you know, Fulton and Rourke appreciates your support. We're always saying support the people who support the show when no one has supported the CME longer, more consistently or better than the guys over at Fulton and Rourke. Go check it out for yourself. FultonandRourke.com. CME listeners right now can save 15% on their first purchase with the coupon code if you nasty. That's all one word. If you nasty over at Fulton and Rourke, do yourself a favor. 
Go get some Fulton and Rourke products. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from the Pasta Rasta. Okay. Yeah. He writes, Sam Alvey, you son of a bitch. Moments prior to the start of his KO loss against Michael O. I like, I like to call him Michael O because that saves me the time. So thanks to the Pasta Rasta for writing that into the email. UFC cameras once again. Uh, Johnny on the spot. Pivot to Alvey's six kids hanging out with grandma on the crowd. Alvy is winless in his last eight. He had to know things were probably going to go bad. Please explain to me why you would subject your six children to that type of trauma. This was a, I believe, first round TKO loss for Sam Alvey. One minute and 56 seconds. So you can't really even make the claim that things are getting any better for, for him. Well... Maybe that's the MMA gods reading the ESPN profile piece on him beforehand where he kept lamenting how many of his losses in this winless streak were split decisions. Like decisions and split decisions. And the MMA gods from atop Mount Zion went, oh yeah? And then was just like, all right, here you go. We're going to give you a first round knockout loss in which your whole shit gets broke and make sure your kids are there to see it. I mean, that that is a choice, isn't it? I mean, I guess he had to be thinking that this was probably going to be the last one. He knew probably going to be the last one. It's the last fight on the contract with the UFC. He knew probably not going to renew that contract, no matter how things go. And so maybe he just felt like, let's get the family all together for one big reunion night that so they can come see this last one, in which you're like a three-to-one underdog, and you go out there and you get iced and it's true. You kind of can't say like, well, who could have possibly seen that coming? Fucking everybody saw it coming, man. Everybody saw that shit coming. Uh, maybe it was even rougher than they thought it was going to be. And, but I, I don't know. I, something tells me maybe Sam Alvey's kids have seen this before. He doesn't seem like the type who's like, Hmm, well, I, I got to make sure that the kids don't know that daddy gets beat up for a living sometimes. Like they, they, they probably know they probably are all about that life. Um, the thing that got to me was his video afterwards where he posts this video from from the Ambo, it seemed, mm-hmm. going to the yeah. hospital after the fight. And he was like, you know, I don't know what happened. I swear I used to be good at this. Like, <laughs> I was in the top 10 for a minute. Like, I used yeah. to be better at this. I've lost a step. And he's still maintaining his upbeat demeanor and everything. Yeah. Uh, but I felt like that was very honest. Where he's yeah. like, I don't know what happened here. <laughs> like, I, I, I didn't always suck at this, uh, and I know how it looks now. But like, damn, it, it wasn't always this way. And yet, it is like, I know he was feeling like the UFC was really doing him some favors by letting him fight out this contract by not cutting him sooner. Uh, and there are, you know, a lot of speculation about exactly why that is. Why did Sam Alvey get so much rope? So much more so than other fighters with better records and better promise uh, still to come in their careers. And uh, we could all speculate. We could all have our reasons about maybe Sam Alvey being so vocally pro-UFC and anti-even the idea of any sort of collective fighter action. May probably helped and everything. But... It's also like by keeping him around that long, they sort of drew attention to the just the record breaking nature of this winless streak, which I saw several people talking about that afterwards. Like Sam Alvey has broken the record. It's like, well, I don't know if we want to say broken the record, you know, because it's not (laughs) a good thing. I don't even know if Sam Alvey would want to say that. Yeah. You just start pointing out like you're really bringing a focus like this guy has not won more than anybody else who didn't win. 
He is the not winningest motherfucker we have ever seen in the UFC. Isn't that something? And you're like, mm, yeah. maybe you guys could not point that out so much. Just, just how I'd be feeling about it, I guess. Yeah, well, if they do renew the contract, then we got to have an internal yeah. investigation because at that point, <laughs> you got to think Sam Alvey has dirt on the whole UFC brass. Every, everybody up on the top floor, Sam Alvey has a file on you, and that's why you're keeping him around. Or, otherwise, or it doesn't really make sense. We find out that the UFC has a life insurance policy out on Sam Alvey, <laughs> and they're trying to cash. It'll uh, be like Sam I, Alvey, we, we signed him to a new deal, going to fight Francis Ngannou next. And that's when you're like, okay, hold on. We see what's happening. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily differentiate Sam Alvey from his peers, just the fact, or many of his peers, I should say, the fact that he is very vocally pro-UFC and anti-any kind of fighters union. So I don't know that it would necessarily be that that would keep Sam Alvey around for so long. But this has got to be the end of the road, you would think. And, you know, he didn't say he was going to retire, but the tenor of this Instagram video from the Ambo uh, sir, sure made it sound like this was was the end of the road for Sam Alvey. And frankly, I don't think Sam Alvey and I have a lot in common, aside from the fact that we both have a million kids. Uh, but like, you know, he's out here vocally cheering the end of Roe versus Wade, yeah. and he's anti-Fighters Union and all this other stuff. So there's definitely reasons why you could criticize Sam Alvey above and beyond a million losses in a row to close out this UFC run. But honestly, I find it kind of endearing when the guy is sitting in the ambulance being like, I used to be better than this and I don't know what happened. Like that's, I mean, he's taking it about as well as you could. Well, so. yeah, And he's saying the part that tons of other fighters have thought to themselves, probably also in the ambulance. You know, one of, Dana White's most cogent observations on the fight game is one night you show up and you're old or nine nights in a row you show up and you're old. But how you feel like you're doing this, you're getting better, you're figuring some stuff out, you're climbing up the ranks, and then the next thing you know, holy shit, you can't buy a win. What the hell happened? And that it'll kind of build on itself. And I'm sure it didn't get any easier to go in there and feel no pressure and, and let it all hang out when the whole story about you building up into each and every one of these fights is how many times are they going to let this guy keep doing this when he yeah. can't win? Well, you would think this would have to be the last one. You would think next question this week comes to us from Steven Sprang, who writes, here's your roadhouse remake movie synopsis. MMA fighter and champion John Deadeye Dalton loses his title and is forced into retirement due to a serious injury at the hands of his rival, Greg Infamous McConnor, a practitioner okay. of the deadly art of Dundasso. All right. Well, I thought this was serious for him. I thought somebody was actually reading this shit off of IMDb. We're, we're having fun. That's what we're doing. After searching for meaning okay. in life. After the cage, Dalton finds a new place in the thrilling but dangerous world of nightlife, nightclub security. When hired to pull a small town bar from the brink of closure, Dalton is forced to not only navigate the dangers of a town under the thumb of a local crime lord, but also to face a dark shadow from his past. And then it says, uh, parenthetically here at the bottom, Q Connor in a monster truck covered in diamonds. And then at the end, it says, try to convince me that this won't be how this plays out. Okay, so of that's course, shockingly no, that's, plausible. That's everything a good, about it. That's a good pitch yeah. right there for Roadhouse, but that's not the real one. That uh, Stephen Sprang has made this up as far as we know, unless he's a, a silent producer on the Roadhouse movie. We talked about this a couple times last week on the Patreon. This broke uh, last week. Conor McGregor signed to a quote unquote starring role in this Roadhouse remake that is going to star Jake Gyllenhaal as the lead. 
And like we pointed out a couple times last week, this this project was originally supposed to star Ronda Rousey years ago, and then everything kind of fell apart. The studio was not convinced about her acting chops. It never really happened. So now it very much feels, Ben, like we're just shuffling the latest big UFC draw into like a supporting role here in the Roadhouse remake. Conor McGregor going down there to the Dominican Republic, which apparently they're filming to stand in for uh, the Florida Keys, where this movie is set. Uh, We don't know how long the filming will take. We don't know what kind of um, time commitment he's got to the Roadhouse remake. But like we said last week, This really doesn't make it sound like Conor McGregor is on the doorstep of returning to the UFC, whether it be the lightweight division or the welterweight division. So uh, it seems to me like the fighting future of Conor McGregor is as murky as it ever has been as we check in with him here in August of 2022. Yeah, and I don't know how much time really this necessarily would have to take out of his schedule, depending on, I mean, if he is playing Greg Infamous McConnor, I mean, from the sound of this synopsis, which again, it sounds plausible enough that I was fooled for at least like a sentence and a half here, you know, and yet, even if it went down exactly according to this, what's that, you know, two scenes, two scenes he's got to film, he could be back in there if he wanted to, it just also doesn't seem like, like the UFC lightweight division seems like it's decided to move on. We've given up on the idea of trying to sign Nate Diaz to an extension and so we can book a trilogy there. Dustin Poirier has got himself another fight. Everybody's sort of moving on with their lives. Yeah, Nate Diaz. He's going to fight Kamzat Chemaev and then exactly. from everything we believe, probably going to uh, pack up his stuff and, and roll out of the UFC training center for greener pastures. So I don't know when Conor McGregor might return. I guess there's rumors of another fight with Floyd Mayweather swirling around. I don't oh, know God. who. No, come on. I don't Just, know who. God damn it. I don't, I don't know who would pay to watch that again, uh, but that's out there. And so we don't we don't know what's next for Conor, aside from the fact that he's going to roll up here and be the new Terry Funk in Listen, the uh, Roadhouse remake. I don't want to stray in the territory of hyperbole here, but if they book another Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather boxing match. Remember that dude went crazy and built his own tank and terrorized a small town in like Colorado. I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna drive it into the arena. I'm gonna, I'm I'm I will I will go out in a blaze of glory to stop that fight from happening. God damn it, no, no, I simply will not stand for it. Now I don't know anything about the actual practicalities of building the tank. It does sound kind of hard. But uh, if there's one thing that could get me to figure it out, start YouTubing some, some self-help tips, some, some handy make-your-own-tank tips. You go ahead and you book that fight. You see what happens. You see if Ben Folks doesn't drive through there in a goddamn tank. Don't test me. So just to recap from this week, you have stolen another man's bets. Yep. And now here we are 20 minutes into the show. You're basically threatening to become a mass shooter. I didn't say if anything about Connor, shooting anybody. I'm just driving just my tank drive- through there. And I'm gonna I'm gonna crush the ring, like I'm the fucking big show or something. Like I'm just rolling in there in my homemade so tank. You're talking more of a Brock Lesnar shows up at SummerSlam with a tractor and flips yeah. the ring over. Yeah, I, I might also pull down the jumbotron while I'm in there, but I will not allow that to happen. Okay. I was, I was, I'm not gonna say. You know, all that it takes for evil to spread, Chad, is for good people to do nothing, and yeah. I'm not gonna do nothing. Mm-hmm. They're going to have pictures of you up at every entrance to the arena. Good luck seeing me. Says, I'll be in a tank. I'll be in a fucking tank that guy, I made myself. 
if this guy shows up in a tank, don't let him in. <laughs> Do not let this guy in in his tank. Next question this week comes to us from Darwin Nunez, who writes, spelling can be hard to track. Brian Battle called out Brian Barbarina because he thought they spelled the Brian differently okay. and didn't like it. Mm-hmm. And Brendan Fitzgerald called that out right after the post-fight interview. Battle's second point of the middleweight division only being big enough for one Brian might be true. Us shit-eating wild people love an entertaining post-fight interview, but how much does that help the fighter gain traction? Please discourse. Uh, Brian Battle went out there and kicked Takahashi Sato right in his head. Yep. 44 seconds into the first round of this welterweight fight on the preliminary card. Uh, you know, he's he's got the locks. He's got the stoppages. And now he's got the utterly random post-fight callouts. So a lot to like about what's going on with Brian Battle. And, uh, you know. Give him, give him another Brian. Give him somebody else. I don't care, but I'll, uh, I'll watch this guy fight again. Well, I mean, you could forgive him for thinking like, okay, these people really loved it when uh, Rafael Fazeev wanted to fight, wants to fight all the other Rafaels. Uh, yeah. You know, maybe I could do something like that, get into some kind of business like that. You do want to double check the spelling if you're going to make this your whole thing. I mean, really, the weirdest thing about the way Brian Barbarina's name is spelled isn't the first name. It's the, the brand Barbarina, spelled like Barber. You think it's going to be Barbarina. I mean, anybody who has had to quickly write a recap or something of a Brian Barbarina fight has made that mistake before, had to learn the hard way. And really, instead, you call out a guy who's exactly your kind of Brian. And that just feels like a bit of an unforced error. Yeah, Brian on Brian crime. Uh, anywho. Maybe, you know, one of the, among all of the stoppages, one of the better highlight reel finishes here for Brian Battle over the weekend in its welterweight fight. That is going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and you click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us right now, though. We are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Well, Ben, Jamal Hill at this point shapes up as sort of maybe a sneaky prospect in the light heavyweight division. I'm not sure he's one of these guys that we talk about as a as a an A tier level fighter right now when we're talking about what's going to happen with Yuri Prohaska and uh, uh, Yanni Blackjacks and whether or not there's going to be a rematch with Glover Teixeira. But here you got 31 year old Jamal Hill, whose only professional loss. Uh, was that one to Paul Craig back at UFC 263. 
and since then, he's put three wins together in a row, all of them by stoppage. Of course, most recently on Saturday, we saw him go to the championship rounds with Tiago Santos before he stopped things via TKO, which was one of those ones where it, yeah, it just looked like Tiago Santos was ready to go home. Yep. He was just kind of like, ah, we've been doing this, what, 20 minutes? I'm tired. You keep punching me in the face. Yeah. Can't really take you down, even though I really want to. I'm ready to go home. Doesn't look and like so, I'm going to win, so I might as well lose. Yeah, so we went ahead and, and called this one off. Uh, but just considering the run that Jamal Hill is on, considering his relatively youthful status at 31 years old, and uh, considering that all he's got is that kind of uh, flukish blemish against Paul Craig, well, how do how does this guy shape up at this point as a as a prospect in the new look 205 pound division? As far as you are concerned, yeah, I mean. That is the thing, but we've talked before how in John Jones's absence, the light heavyweight division feels newly wide open. And so I think a lot of it that we're looking around, it feels like we're kind of looking for a fixer-upper house at light heavyweight. You know, we're looking around and we're being like, okay, so we're not necessarily in a situation where anybody's thinking move-in ready mansion, but let's, can we find something with good bones? Can we find something that, you know, the the fundamentals are sound. There's good stuff to build on there. And so I think we all, we end up looking around and we see some guy where you're like, okay, big guy, uh, athletic, good frame, uh, with more experience to, to add there. Maybe he gets more dangerous, fight IQ gets better, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and we could be thinking a year and a half, two years, who knows he could be wearing the belt. And I, I think that we've kind of been doing that for a while and you'll, it's understandable why people would look at Jamal Hill at this point and be like, okay, that looks like a dangerous man. That looks like somebody, once he gets, you know, uh, just a little more miles on him, seen a little more, a few more situations, uh, he, you know, he could really turn into something. Yeah. Obviously, Tiago Santos, we're dealing with a slightly different animal today than we are with the Tiago Santos of, say, 2018, 2019, when he ran off four wins in a row and cruised into UFC 239 with his light heavyweight title shot against John Jones, which was one of those John Jones appearances where uh, Jones kind of eked it out one by split decision back in the summer of 2019. That kind of touched off a stretch of adversity for Tiago Santos. He's 38 years old at this point. He is just one in five in his last six. He's lost now back-to-back fights to Magomed Ankalaev and Jamal Hill. So you might say uh, his role in the UFC light heavyweight division is rapidly becoming clear. He might be a gatekeeper of sorts to the uh, to the upper elite level of the division. And yet it still feels meaningful to me that Jamal Hill was able to go out there and essentially outbrawl this guy because that's kind of Tiago Santos's whole deal, man. He's got the Thor sledgehammer tattooed on his chest and he's going to go out there and throw them bungalows. And Jamal Hill is basically able to beat him at his own game in this in this weekend's fight. And, and you know, I didn't expect Tiago Santos to have, what was it, like 175 takedown attempts or something like that? <laughs> it was pretty close to 175. So... It's a good performance here from Jamal Hill. I like that he went into the championship rounds. I like that he was able to get a stoppage. I like that he wasn't just able to compete with the slumping Tiago Santos on the feet, but was able to pretty much outclass him. Uh, he looks good to me, man. This was a victory over the number six officially ranked light heavyweight in the UFC. Top 15, Jamal Hill came in at number 10. 
you got to think he shapes up maybe against somebody like a returning Dominic Reyes or the also somewhat slumping Anthony Smith as soon as he gets healthy or Alexander Rakich, something like that might be next for Jamal Hill. Something like that would make sense. But, he, you know, he's an interesting guy. He's someone to keep an eye on in this in this division where we're still not totally sure who's going to shake out at the top in the wake of, of John Jones's exit. You know, it's interesting, though, that you point out what's been going on with Tiago Santos. Because it is strange how you saw him in that fight with John Jones where he went, oh, hey, he went in there, gave John Jones a fight, and did it on, like, no knees, basically. Yeah. Like, was tearing yeah. all the, the tendons out of his knees in that fight. And I don't know if, it, if that played a role or if uh, something else was going on with him, but, you know, he loses that fight via split decision to come that close to winning the UFC light heavyweight title, beating one of the greatest fighters in the history of the sport. And then after that, man... Uh, one in four, one in four in the next five after that. You know, he got choked by Glover Teixeira, lost a decision in a pretty boring fight to Alexander Rakic, lost a decision in a boring fight to Johnny Walker, lost to Magomed Ankalev, but a lot of people are going to, uh, and then gets stopped here by Jamal Hill. That kind of shows you uh, this sport could be tough on people, man, because I don't know if it's just physically he couldn't bounce back from that or if especially kind of similar to what we talked about with Sam Alvey, you get into a mental place where you're just thinking, God, I just got to win one of these. Uh, he's been sort of relegated in the UFC's eyes to he's a fight night guy. He he Like these last three fights, he's been the fight night main event guy. Uh, and it seems like they've just decided that's the, the, the limit of what he is good for at this point. Uh, I don't know how you bounce back at this point. Uh, fight night main event guy is good work if you can get it. Like that's... Uh... That's better than than where a lot of people end up. Well, so, when you were so close, so close to winning it all, taking yeah, home the gold he, off of Johnny Jones, know, dueling knee surgeries for a guy getting into his late thirties probably does not help at all. Uh, but maybe it's also a situation where you just like you come so close and you don't get it. You think if I'm not going to be the champion, maybe it's maybe it's time to go home. Maybe I just want to go home, just yeah. like he did in the fourth round of this fight against Jamal Hill. And helped that he was hitting uh, you in the face super hard. So, Speaking of getting hit in the face super hard, you know who was good? Jeff Neal. Holy yeah. shit. Kind of wore Vicente Luque around the cage like a hat for most of their fight. This welterweight co-main event that ends up with Jeff Neal getting the KO win uh, two minutes and one second into the third round. Isn't it kind of crazy that they talked about this on the broadcast that Vicente Luque had never been an underdog? In the UFC, in his huh. UFC career, he's never come into a fight as the underdog. He was the favorite here once again against Jeff Neal. Uh, and Jeff Neal outperformed those odds for sure because he he was the better guy in this fight almost 100% of the time, except for a second round where Vicente Luque kind of put some things together but uh, didn't really ever seem to be turning the tide in terms of like taking control of the fight. You know, I like a finish where one guy is just sort of spamming the same move over and over again, because I especially love the psychology of it where you're like copy and paste. Yeah. Like he's got the, uh, he did the control C and now he's doing the control V over and over again on the uppercuts. I'm landing those uppercuts and you know, you think it's like, okay, I've pasted him with an uppercut. You know what? He won't be expecting to come right after that uppercut. Another uppercut. You know what? He'll never think I'll throw three in a row. Shit. He, he's sure I won't throw four in a row. And the next thing you know, you hit him with like seven, eight uppercuts. And he's just, his, his body and his brain just say enough, enough. I can't figure this man out. 
I love it. I love nothing more than that. He's got back-to-back losses to Stephen Thompson and Neil Magny in 2020 and 2021. And now he's got back-to-back wins over Santiago Ponzinibbio and Vicente Luque, who are, of course, both very tough guys. Prior to those two losses, he had wins over Bilal Muhammad, Nico Price, and Mike Perry in a row. And so uh, Jeff Neal is one of these guys, despite those two losses, obviously, you can see he's very, very good. Uh, He's one of these guys like that the UFC just has around. Just like hundreds of super, super tough guys who can go out there and put on a good fight. The the absolute strength of the sprawling UFC roster right now. The ability to just have a random fight night on a Saturday night in early August at the Apex. Where a dude who could potentially be a champion in some other organization like Jeff Neal just kind of comes out and uh, beats the tar out of Vicente Luque. Yep. Who do you call out after this thing? This thing was this whole uh, event was lousy with call outs. I have a hard time even keeping them straight. Uh, I think it was Jamal Hill who got on the mic after and was like, "Oh, a title fight would be good." Like, <laughs> yeah, oh, really? You'd, you'd accept that? You'd like a title fight? You think that'd be good? You know what? At this point, if we're just, as long as we moved on from everybody trying to call out Hasbulla, some sh- or some dopey shit like that, oh, I don't care. I remember what it was. Jeff Neal called out Gilbert Burns. Because he said uh, he had already beat Bilal, which is true. And uh, Gilbert Burns, I believe, a teammate of Vicente Luque. So uh, so Jeff Neal said he would, he'd would he like to fight Gilbert. Gilbert needs something to do. It's not a bad idea. Yeah. Also, good corner advice from Jeff Neal's people. It was kind of shades of put your hands on them, Daryl. But it was just, Jeff, Jeff, keep throwing that 5, 6, 8, 12, 24. Keep throwing the 22, Jeff. And eventually... uh. It's probably code for the uppercut. Yeah. As it turned out, because that's how it worked out. Let's throw six, seven uppercuts, Jeff. <laughs> Do the thing we worked on in the gym where you throw like eight uppercuts right in a row, Jeff. I'll never see All it right, coming. Let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we can move on to round number two. Ben, did you see this? We've been tracking this a little bit that uh, Jake Paul was so, supposed to fight Hasim Rahman Jr. in a boxing match that had to get together get put together because Tommy Fury once again fumbled the bag, couldn't get into the country, allegedly due to his reputed ties to reported organized crime bosses. So we were going to do Haseem Rahman Jr. And then either because of poor ticket sales, as Dana White would allege, or because the athletic commission was worried that Haseem Rahman Jr. wasn't going to make the weight. We went ahead and called the thing off. So now there's no fight. Now Jake Paul is over here starting betting apps and continuing to uh, talk shit to this KSI fellow who seems beneath him at this point, but oh well. Haseem Rahman Jr. takes it upon himself to call his own way in Mm -hmm. for a fight that's not going to happen. He wanted to come in, show that he could make the 205-pound limit, wanted to clear the air, wanted to say that all of these concerns over his weight were overblown. Then you know what he does, Ben? At the weigh-in that he called for, the weigh-in we didn't have to do, the weigh-in that he just showed up at Gleason's gym down there in Brooklyn, climbed on the scale, I seen Rockman Jr. missed weight. <laughs> you fucking kidding me? He weighed in at 206.6 pounds for a weigh-in where he, the whole point was to show he could make 205. The whole point was to say I can make the weight. Again, I'll just reiterate, didn't have to do it. Didn't even Nobody was making him do the nope. weigh-in. Optional. He showed up to stand on the scale, missed fucking weight at his own fake weigh-in. 
Are you fucking kidding me, dude? Optional weigh-in. Didn't have to do it at all. Fucked it up. Didn't have to do it. Missed weight. Fucking kidding kidding me? me? Come on, man. Come on. That's almost, it's almost too perfect. You know? Well, Jed, this week, my, are you fucking kidding me? So, scrolling the social medias. I'm watching these videos from uh, our weigh-in face-offs for Tuesday night's Dana White Contender Series 49. And, you know, we made a big deal these last couple years in the UFC. Maybe ever since Jeremy Stevens uh, damn near ended a man's career injuring him with a shove at a weigh-in. And then we made a big deal about, you know what? No one's allowed to touch each other anymore at these pre-fight face-offs. Whether we're at the press conference, the weigh-ins, we're making it a big deal. Dan White's going to be standing there with his arm in between people with a very serious look on his face. Or we're going to have one of the matchmakers there. We're going to make sure these people are not even coming into physical contact with each other. Because it's enough of that people are just getting out of hand with it. And we've had enough. Except apparently at the Dana White Contender Series where we don't give a fuck. Because here, I watched this video, we've got Sandra Lovato and Carolina Wojcik, I'm sure I nailed it, uh, and they have this, one of these stare downs where they get, you know, forehead to forehead, and someone's trying to get lower, and then the other person has to get lower, and we're doing, and there's, there's nobody even in sight to try to get in there and physically separate them. Reading from the MMA Junkie report by my man, Ken Hathaway over there, he writes, with no UFC matchmaker in attendance to face off the athletes, things nearly got wild in the first stare down for Dana White's Contender Series 49. Um, okay, so we're doing the Dana White Contender Series. We're, we're still churning out that content, signing fighters early on in their careers to these uh, cheap contracts, and we can't even be bothered to show up for the weigh-ins? Okay, fine, we can't get a matchmaker to show up. You know who could maybe show up and do the thing, for just take 10 minutes out of his day to, to do this? It's the guy whose name is on the thing. Dana White's Contender Series. Dana White can't be bothered to go down. Just, like, walk down to the ground floor of the office building, basically. It's in your hometown. You're there anyway. You're supposed to be, right? It's a work day. you fucking kidding me? We can't get anybody down there. Just make sure that we're this shit that we have decided is very important doesn't happen in the UFC anymore. Uh, in the Contender Series, fuck it. We'll, they'll figure it out. We can get an usher in there or something. Fucking kidding me? I'm fucking kidding me. Now, see, this well, I've been saying for years, this is why we need a second Dana White. <laughs> I mean, we got Daniel Cormier waiting in the wings, you know? We can't. Yeah, get DC out there. You know what? I guarantee no one's touching each other in the face off with no. DC out there. Send Hell your best. No. Send your best. Just don't send anybody you want back. <laughs> DC going to hit you with that high crotch you even think <laughs> about getting up in somebody's face. Going to turn you topsy-turvy and dump you on your head like a Josh Barnett in 2009 or whatever. Don't do it just me. for fun. Doesn't give a shit. That's going to do it for round one. We'll be right back with round number two. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 
Jed, Mike Tyson is mad. Mike Tyson is mad online. And he is mad online at Hulu. The streaming service Hulu. Because, as you may know, Hulu has a limited series about Mike Tyson's life called Mike that is set to premiere later this month, kind of end of August. And Mike Tyson's really mad about it. I mean, there's an MMA tie-in here because the way he started to tell people how mad he was about it was by posting a picture of him and UFC president Dana White and being like, Hulu offered my friend Dana White all this money to promote their series, but they didn't give me any money for it, uh, didn't consult me on making it or anything, just stole my story. And then tried to pay Dana White to promote it, I guess, by buying ads on the UFC. He doesn't go into detail about that part. But Dana White said no because of his friendship with Mike Tyson. And Mike Tyson writes on Twitter, Hulu stole my story. They're Goliath and I'm David. Heads will roll for this. Hey, at Hulu, I'm not a, and I think we're going for the N-word here, but he's doing the asterisks on it, censoring his own thing. You can sell on the auction block. Slavery, hashtag slavery is over. Hashtag fuck Hulu. And then in the follow-up, Hulu's model of stealing life rights of celebrities is egregiously greedy. Hashtag heads will roll. So he's mad. He is mad at Hulu. Now, Hulu's response, uh, I I read this in uh, ET.com, where basically one of the executive producers for uh, this series makes first tried to make the claim that, you know what, we couldn't get... We, we didn't even reach out to him because Mike Tyson's life rights have already been purchased. And so they're sort of off off the, the table. Uh, and so we couldn't get it. Mike Tyson fireback said that's not true, that he had, had sold a life rights option deal uh, a while back, but it has expired years ago and that they never even reached out to him. Uh, and this is uh, Stephen Rogers, one of the executive producers on Mike, who t- said that basically... They didn't want to go through Mike for the story because they wanted to tell the story from a a more well-rounded version than just what's Mike's story of Mike's own story. Here's the quote. For me, as a writer, as a storyteller, I don't really like to be reliant on just one source. I really like to do the research and get all these different opinions and then put a story around all of that. I don't like to be beholden to just one person. And see... It seems a little bit of a sticky situation because to me, uh, on one hand, that does make some sense. Like, yeah. you, if you're going to tell this story about Mike Tyson's life, he's a very public figure, has been for damn near 40 years now. He's told his story in many different ways, and other people have told his story in many different ways. There's a lot out there that you can you can go through, and you don't have to just say, hey, Mike, let us give you some money. You tell us the story the way you want it told. And then, you know, you you, you go on, you make Mike's version of Mike's life. That That does seem like maybe not the only way to do it or the best way to do it. And then at the same time, though, Hulu has gotten into some of this shit before. Yeah. With the, the Pam and Tommy thing that we talked about uh, on one of our other supplemental uh, Patreon offerings, where... A lot of people made the argument, you know, you're you trying to do this series about a sex tape involving that was stolen from Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee, and you end up doing to Pamela Anderson the same thing that you were trying to depict being done to her, where you exploit her without her consent for your own financial gain. And it's Mike Tyson is arguing that here's what they're doing here to me. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just some people. It was Pamela Anderson herself came out and said that she felt re-victimized all over again by the Pam and Tommy uh, Hulu series, which was like a big hit of the spring. There was a lot of famous people in it. 
And now it does kind of seem like they're doing the same thing to Mike Tyson. And as you know, it, it is a situation where you can see both sides of the coin, because as you said, Mike Tyson is a public person. He's, there's a lot of information out there about his life. There's no law or nothing stopping Hulu from going ahead and making a Mike Tyson miniseries. Uh, but at the same time, it seems a little shady. It feels a little grubby to me to make a thing about a living person without their consent or input or any kind of, uh, you know, say in the matter at all. If, you know, if you're going to market it kind of being Mike Tyson's story, because I stumbled upon a, tra- a trailer for this show just so I was like watching yeah. Hulu. I saw a commercial for it. Speaking of which, we're all mad at Hulu, not just Mike. Everybody's mad at Hulu. How are they going to make me wait another week for the next episode of Only Murders in the Building? I'm mad about that. Uh, but I so I saw this commercial and it's like it's got a guy. First of all, tough to cast Mike Tyson, dude, yeah. while he's still alive. And you're going to like try to you're going to have a guy on screen pretending to be Mike Tyson. You know what? I'm going to be thinking every second. That's not Mike Tyson. Well, yeah. I mean, you got to find That's somebody who can do the lisp, right? Um, and you got to find somebody who can just physically embody that presence that Mike Tyson was in the 80s and 90s. To get anybody to do one of them is tough. To get somebody who can do both seems very difficult. Yeah. So I'm I'm watching I was, I'm watching the trailer thinking, that's not Mike Tyson. That's somebody else. I don't know who that is, but that's not Mike Tyson. And it's one of, it seems to be one of these things, kind of like Showtime, uh, the show about the Lakers, where you're going to have Mike Tyson like narrating it. Like it seems to be kind of like a, uh, what is it, uh, like Saved by the Bell kind of situation where Breaking the Mike fourth Tyson, wall. Yeah, Mike Tyson is going to break the fourth wall and look at the camera and be like, you're probably wondering how I got myself in this situation. Yes, that's uh, me. So, yeah. yeah, so that's that seems weird to yeah. do it that way, to have like the, the gimmick of the show be that Mike Tyson is going to narrate it, and yet Mike Tyson didn't have anything to do with the production, and like clearly he's not happy about it, and he's going to go online and and, uh, and cut a big Twitter promo, do a little uh, Twitter thread on this thing. Here is my question for you, though. Is this good for the show or bad for the oh, show? Yeah. Is this P.T. Barnum? Is this P.T. Barnum? Being like all publicity is good publicity, or does is this going to turn people off from the show? I d- I didn't think that I wanted to watch it in the first place, but now I'm just sort of like, yeah, I see it feels kind of scummy to me. Okay, the the thing about feeling kind of scummy to you, let me ask you this: Does that feeling change depending on who the person that we're telling the sort of unauthorized biography of is? Because, for example, what if it's Mark Zuckerberg with a social network? Yeah. And that one, it feels like, you know, there were plenty of people who are involved, who who were told a story about in the social network who came out afterwards and said, here are the things that this movie got wrong about us. This yeah. wasn't like this, that, you know, and. Well, then they said the same thing about Showtime. And then, you know, there's that show Vice, uh, which is about the Bush administration that right. has Dick Cheney and George W. Bush and all these people in it. So this is not unheard of by any stretch of the imagination. And I feel like I don't really have an affinity for Mike Tyson. I don't totally have the shared affinity that all other people in the MMA space appear to have for Mike Tyson, where he is one of the most revered figures in the history of our nation or whatever. But I still think like, yeah, it's a little, it seems a little shady to me. I mean, it doesn't have to be because, like, I you know, I, I've read up before on just the 
the law of doing it this way. And boxing actually has sort of a, it gets its own weird history with these kinds of things. Um, because we talked before about the movie The Harder They Fall, in which yeah, they're we... clearly trying to make a movie about Primo Carnera. Never use Primo Carnera's name, you know? And so they get around it that way. But there, it is, it did damage to him, to public uh, perception of his career, and he tried to sue over it unsuccessfully. And but even though they don't never said this is this Primo Carnera story, people still read it that way, and it still managed to to hurt how they thought of the guy and hurt him personally a great deal. Um, but also uh, there was a boxer uh, I got his name here uh, Joey Giardello who he is shown uh, a depiction of him is shown briefly in the movie Hurricane or the movie with Denzel Washington about Reuben Hurricane Carter. And it shows him having a fight, uh, like a title fight with Joe Giardello, who I believe was a champion at the time. And Giardello wins the decision. And the movie portrays it as a bad decision, a possibly corrupt and racially motivated decision that everybody realizes is wrong and that uh, Hurricane Carter is screwed out of the title this way. And Joey Giardello sued them on that saying like, no man, I won that fight. Everybody knows I won that fight. There was nothing shady about that fight. I beat his ass and settled out of court with them. But like it's there, it's been protected for a long time. Like there was a, uh, like a, a black Panther leader who sued over a, a movie depiction of his life. And the, if you're making a docudrama, especially, and this, it's like at this point, really hard to succeed on one of these lawsuits. Cause you have to not only show like, you can't just be like, Hey, I won this in 1989. They're saying I won it in 1987. Like it's got to be egregious stuff that really does you harm, and that you can say has some sort of malicious intent. Like you could get a lot closer with the Primo Carnera thing, honestly, even though yeah. they use a different name than you can with a lot of these others. And so there's nothing really like legally, especially that you can do. And for Mike Tyson, who he's been out here for years since his fighting career has been effectively over, telling us the Mike Tyson story, and has also admitted. That at least some of that time, he's been lying to us about it. Remember for a while, he was doing a stage show about, yeah. his, like a one-man stage show about his life, and he was telling about the story about how he got sober, and then later admitted he was not sober during that point. Like, that, that was just kind of a ruse that he was doing. And he's had a good long run of profiting off of the Mike Tyson story. And, you know, a lot of other people you, you can argue have too. But for somebody to come along and be like, we're going to make a Mike Tyson story. And for him to say, hey, they didn't even reach out to me about buying the rights. I mean, one of the things that I've learned like looking into the legalities of this is that a lot of people will say, if you're not sure that you can buy the rights or that you want to, um, don't reach out. Because you can cause yourself a lot more trouble by unsuccessfully reaching out and try and getting getting into a discussion about buying the rights and then not being able to do it and then going ahead with your project anyway. You're better off just not even talking to them and going ahead and doing your story. And the thing, I, you know, I wrote about it on my Substack thing today, and it made me think about the uh, the book that I read that I've talked about before, the last great fight about the Tyson Douglas fight in Tokyo, where, where the biggest upset in the history of boxing. And that guy in the acknowledgments talks about how hard it was to try to get an interview with Mike Tyson. And that one of Tyson's advisors was like, Mike usually doesn't get involved in a project for less than a hundred grand. And he was like, well, Hey, I'm not even going to make a hundred grand off this book. So like, that's kind of out of the question, but also B, if I pay him for an interview to be in this book, he becomes a partner in the book yeah. and it ruins the book's integrity. And it seems to me when I look around, we have a whole lot of movies like that these days. 
Like a yeah. whole lot of celebrities being like, let's make movies about ourselves and how awesome we are and what a dick our first manager was and shit like that. And like, you know, right. if Mike Tyson made this series, there'd be a lot of shit in there about Don King, probably rightfully so, but like other people. But like, what do you do if you Mike becomes your partner when you buy his life rights and then you go to sit down and make the series and he's like, uh, I don't like all this stuff about my rape conviction, man. I don't like this stuff about uh, me beating Robin Givens, even though I admitted and bragged about it at one point. What do you do then? Like, how do you balance that thing between, like, I don't want to feel like I'm exploiting the guy, but I also want to tell the true story here. Yeah. I mean, I guess you're probably right. Like, you couldn't make a an unflinching or, or true account of Mike Tyson's life if Mike Tyson was going to be a partner and it didn't have his fingers in it. So maybe if that's what you want to do, uh, you're better off to do it without Mike Tyson. Uh, it just, and especially since Hulu already did this, right, with Pam and Tommy, that we already had people come out and say that they feel exploited by this. It does feel a little bit weird to me. Like maybe Hulu has now found this niche for itself where it's like, oh, one thing we can do relatively cheaply that is going to make us a lot of money is to do like these tell all biopic miniseries events about celebrities. And I don't know, maybe I need to watch the Mike Tyson thing and, and, and see what the content of it is before I make my decision. But like that as a business model to me just seems a, I don't know that I would want to do it. I'll just say that. Yeah. I mean, it does. That is also the thing is like, we're all talking, Mike Tyson's talking about it. We're talking about it without seeing it. And yeah. it's possible that you watch it and you come away and be like, okay, that feels like a honest and unflinching, but also like you know, not a hit piece and not exploitative takedown of Mike Tyson. And then you come away and you think that it was good because I, like, I can't think of that many things I've seen about somebody where like about a famous person where they were involved in making it, where I came away going like, okay, that really felt like the, the real story. It always feels like you, you got to make a movie about yourself to yeah. one extent or another. Yeah. In any case, Mike Tyson, miniseries coming out on hulu soon so take that information for what it's worth that's gonna do it for round number two we'll be right back with round number three mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, Ben, the UFC has done it to me again, despite the fact that I feel like I followed this sport pretty closely. I was astounded to see advertisements on Saturday for next week's fight card, where apparently Dominic Cruz is going to fight Marlon Vera. I probably at some point knew that this fight was in the offing or they were trying to schedule it or that it was going to happen. But the UFC schedule is so uh, wild and woolly, so unrelenting. So uh, ubiquitous that frequently I totally forget that these fights are happening. And then they'll be like Marlon Chito Vera against Dominic Cruz. And I'll be like, wow, really? That's interesting. That's happening next weekend. I can't believe it. What do you make of this uh, bantamweight 
action here between Chito Vera and Dominic Cruz, which I guess is a big fight for both guys, but at the same time kind of seems like, as I said earlier, just another Saturday in August where we're going to have a couple of guys fight each other. Well, it's been a busy summer. You know, yeah. a lot of stuff happens in the summertime and trying to squeeze some vacations in. I feel like this, when I when I was also reminded of this, it felt like you ever have like a weird dream and kind of wake up and you feel like you've forgotten it. And then you're sitting there, you know, you're making your lunch several hours later and you're like, oh shit, what the, what? What the hell was that? Or even worse, where you're like, wait, was that a dream or did that actually happen? That's kind of how I feel about this. Like when I heard about it, I'm like, I, no, yeah, I, I can kind of talk myself into believing that I knew this was going to happen. Just not yet. Didn't know it was this weekend. Yeah, here you go. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm looking up from the newspaper. I mean, like, I'm sorry, did you say Dominic Cruz? Is, is fighting, fighting this weekend? Huh, that Dominic Cruz? Oh, Maybe shit. considering his injury history, we decided it was just better off and that we're not going to say anything about it until we're relatively sure he's going to make the date. Uh, Marlon Vera. I don't know if I want to call it a legends ass whooping tour, but he has been on a little bit of an old guy ass whipping tour lately. Beat Frankie Edgar in November of 2021. Beat Rob Font just a few months ago in April. Now he's got Dominic Cruz on the docket, the 36-year-old former champion. Dominic Cruz, in case you haven't been paying attention, has two wins in a row over Casey Kenny and Pedro Munoz. And oh, by the way, even today, in August, during the year of our Lord 2022, the only three men that Dominic Cruz has ever lost to, Uriah Faber, Cody Garbrandt, Henry Cejudo. Yep. How big of a deal will it be if Marlon Vera beats Dominic Cruz this weekend? I think, you know, that's the thing is I think too many people have already got it in their heads just because they got used to Dominic Cruz not being around, that Dominic Cruz is the division's past. And so they think that a win over him is not as significant as maybe it is. When you when you do step back, you realize, oh shit, the only people who beat Dominic Cruz are pretty damn good. And that he's even shown himself, despite being 36 years old in a division that tends to prioritize, you know, youth and reflexes, still pretty good. Maybe not the same Dominic Cruz that he was, and shit, Lord knows he's come by it honestly. He's been through some shit to get to this point, but still pretty good. Can still do a lot of Dominic Cruz stuff, still a really smart fighter and good overall athlete. You beat that guy now, that still means something. Yeah, and he also has a fighting style that is reliant on skill and reflexes and may not age that well, uh, you know, as he continues to, to get older in this sport. Of course, we got the title picture right now, Aljamain Sterling recently with his, uh, his prove it fight against Peter Yan that he won. Uh, we're talking about having Peter Yan now fight Sean O'Malley, TJ Dillashaw, maybe next up for the title, Corey Sandhagen still hanging around, but those along with Jose Aldo are all of the guys who are ranked above Marlon Vera. Uh, Dominic Cruz actually ranked three spots below Marlon Vera, which is uh, maybe surprising, maybe not, depending on how closely you've been following men's bantamweight. I don't know, man. This just seems like it's a a little bit of an odd pairing to me, and it's also uh, one that really snuck up on me, one that I was just not prepared for. It's kind of uh, still trying to wrap my mind brain around it, to be honest. You know what I'm going to be interested to see how it plays out in this one? So we're doing this one. You know, it's it's a UFC fight night thing. But we're not doing it at the Apex. We're going to San Diego. We're taking this one on the road. UFC hasn't mm-hmm. hasn't had a ton of success necessarily going to San Diego and hasn't done it a whole lot. But we're going to San Diego. This is a Pachanga Arena over there. Um, 
you know, Dominic Cruz, I mean, I'll still call it the San Diego Sports Arena, but that's me. I'm old school. Dominic Cruz is a San Diego guy. Yeah. You know, born and raised. From way back, Dominic Cruz is a San Diego guy. And yet, I will be interested to see if San Diego, or at least the fans in attendance, feel like he is a San Diego. Like, do you think Dominic Cruz gets the sort of like Uriah Faber in Sacramento kind of welcome? Or do people go, oh shit, uh, I mean, I came because it was a UFC, um, and like then when they call him out being from San Diego, I'll, I'll clap with kind of a surprised raising my eyebrows, kind of look at my face. Or does, does San Diego just wrap their arms in a warm embrace around Dom Cruz here? Yeah, uh, here's what I want from Dominic Cruz. Walks out to California love, <laughs> has the white headband on, and maybe we introduce him as the California kid, Harry Dominic Braids. Cruz. Yeah. Yeah. Then that then maybe then half the people in attendance get him confused with Uriah Faber, think that it's the same guy, and all of a sudden you've you've stolen his shine. The shine of your old rival stolen by Dominic Cruz. To answer your question, I I wouldn't expect Dominic Cruz to get a Uriah Faber style ovation from the California crowd. Since as I just said, like Uriah Faber has made the California connection part of his whole shit for a long time. And that obviously really helps to get the home, the home field advantage, the home field environment, but also like maybe Dominic Cruz is, is, uh, is more popular than we think down there in his hometown. I appreciate you being a San Diego purist, by the way, just saying you're not, you're not out here trying to do these corporate sponsorships and Mm-mm. shit, man. That's not how you roll. Mm-mm. It's the San Diego sports it's arena. It's the sports arena, concerned. baby. You can't fool me. Also, you maybe know, what Dom Cruz needs to do is roll in here and really emphasize his San Diego roots. Like, let's, can we come out to some Bucko 9? Can we do that? <laughs> can we come out to some Bucko 9's My Town and uh, just skateboard, like a, a longboard skateboard down there uh, wearing a, a Ocean Beach t-shirt? Uh, and just looking like you, you just woke up down the street at Sunset Cliffs and had to quick get to the, the sports arena in time for your fight. Come on, Don. You lean know, into it, man. This, this seems like another winning idea from the co-main event podcast uh, uh, PR firm from yeah. our... Uh, the CME Consulting Services, LLC. And I'll tell you what, service, that one's on the yeah. house, Dom. You don't even have to Venmo us the 40 bucks. That one's free. You know, this was this past weekend, one of the times when... Uh, when Jamal Hill and Tiago Santos were walking out and we cut to the wide shot of the apex where you can see that there's like 30 people there sitting in armchairs. And I was like, it does feel weird to have these guys in a allegedly important light heavyweight contender fight. It feels weird to have these guys fighting at the apex in this small arena. Now you got the situation where we're going to go to San Diego for Vera versus Cruz. Then we're going to go to Salt Lake City, as we have mentioned on the show before for the weirdest Salt Lake City yeah. main event of all time, pitting Kamaru Usman against Leon Edwards for the welterweight title. Uh, also, Paulo Costa versus Luke Rockhold in the co-main. So that's another kind of weird uh, event to put on in Salt Lake City. Right after Salt Lake City, we're headed to France for the uh, the Cyril Gon mm-hmm. Tai Ivasa fight. So uh, so the UFC's got a little bit of a mini road trip for itself these next few weeks. We return to T-Mobile. For UFC 279 on September 10th, that's the one where Kamzat Shemaev is going to fight Nate Diaz. But we are we're breaking out a little bit of the apex here, and we're going to get out on the road. Shades of a pre-pandemic UFC travel schedule. Yeah, I mean, you know what? Everybody, maybe everybody got too comfortable down there at the apex. Throw your shit in a duffel bag. 
Let's let's get get your passport out. We're hitting up San Diego, and then we're going to fucking Salt Lake City, really partying it up, and then we'll we'll swing on by Paris. Why not Paris, France after Salt Lake City? All right, let's go ahead and we'll do just saying stuff, and uh, then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, I know you didn't miss this when the UFC flashed on the screen during this fight night the upcoming schedule. You know, just to remind us, you, you ran it down where we're going to be. You know, you got Bear versus Cruz. And then you look over here, UFC 278, Usman versus Edwards too. But wait, that, who, that's Kamaru Usman in the picture that I'm looking at, flashed up on the screen there. But I'm pretty sure that's not Leon Edwards. In fact, that, on closer inspection, that appears to be Jamal Hill, who was fighting that same night in a different fight, in an entirely different weight class. I'm just saying, can we get any more disrespectful to Leon <laughs> Edwards going into... I mean, are you trying to ensure that he wins? Is that what you're trying to do? Is that what this is about? We're trying to just, like, go up to Mount Zions and poke the MMA gods with a stick and be like, hey, are you guys paying attention to this shit? We are so discounting Leon Edwards in this title fight rematch with Kamaru Usman... We can't even be bothered to make sure we got the right guy on the fucking graphic that we're going to show as an advertisement to try to get people to buy the pay-per-view. I'm just saying, you're playing with fire now. You, you think you think the, the joke is on Leon Edwards here. Uh, man, we've seen what happens in these situations. You disrespect that man too much, you basically guarantee a title fight upset. I'm just saying... I, just saying, I must not have been paying attention to the advertisements because I did not see this, but now I'm looking at it on the internet. Yeah. And I mean, we didn't talk about this. I know we've mentioned it before, but Jamal Hill has those thumbs up tattoos on his chest, right? So like, if anything, you're Jamal Hill, you're like, well, at least no one will mistake me for anyone else <laughs> when they see me with my thumbs up tattoos. Yeah, I'm, like, I gotta be the only guy with the thumbs up tattoos. Therefore, you know, my identity kind of sealed. That's taken yeah. care of. Wow. That is, I hope that uh, that Leon Edwards cuts out this story from the newspaper yeah. and puts it up on the bulletin board in his gym, because this is bulletin board material. I want a live reaction shot of Leon Edwards <laughs> at home, the, putting the finishing touches on his training camp. He's sitting around, he's eating some brown rice and chicken breasts and, and drinking his distilled water or whatever. He sees them flash that shit up on the screen and goes, oh, come on, bruv, bruv. <laughs> Are you taking the piss? They must be taking the piss with this one. What if they were like, we're gonna we're gonna cut to the home of Leon Edwards, and instead they cut to Chicago, Illinois. It's Jamal <laughs> Hill's house, and it's just an empty chair because he's not there because he's fighting Tiago Santos. It's just a shot yeah, of his night. cat licking itself on the couch. Man, like what? Uh, no, he's not here. No, he's there. What are you guys doing? Yeah. Wow. That is that is bad. Just, just saying. saying. Uh, I don't want to end things on a sad note here, Ben, but I just felt compelled to to just mention this at some point on the podcast that we had this tragedy in Brazil over the weekend. Jiu-Jitsu legend Leandro Lowe shot to death at a nightclub. It sounds like this is a uh, this is a crazy story here. If you according to the police report, I'm looking at the story Guillermo Cruz wrote on MMA fighting, by the way, uh, it said that this uh, off duty police officer or a police officer, Henrique Octavio Olivero Velazzo 
is at this nightclub, apparently like maybe steals a liquor bottle off Leandro Lowe's table. And so then the, the, the jujitsu guy takes him down and like gets the bottle back and holds him there. And then once they're separated, uh, the Velazzo, the other guy gets up, pulls out a gun and shoots Leandro Lowe in the head, killing him. The 33 year old jujitsu, he's called a legend here over and over again by people who know more about it than I do. And there's just an outpouring of sadness and, uh, and con, uh, you know, condolences here from, from a bunch of MMA luminaries finding out about this guy's death. This is one of the more tragic and one of the weirder stories that we have heard in a long time, but just to, to read these details, basically sounds like the most senseless nightclub shooting you could possibly imagine. I'm just saying that's what a tragedy. That's just terrible to lose this guy in this fashion. Yeah. Now you're the jujitsu correspondent of the co-main event podcast. I don't, I'm going to have to admit, I've never heard of Leandro Lowe before this, this incident, but it seems like he's a guy who's, who's was well-respected and maybe hooked into the MMA world too, because there's a lot of MMA people out here acknowledging his passing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was an important figure and uh, that's just like, it's especially crazy to be like, okay, so that's, that's an off duty police officer. That's, that's wild, man. And that is, uh, like, a, it's a major loss for the jujitsu and the MMA scene to lose him like that. Cause he's, he's a young guy, you know, it wasn't like he was done giving that world all he could give it, you know? Yeah. Not to end things on a downer note, but I did want to bring that up. Tragedy there to lose Leandro Lowe at such a young age down there in Brazil in what seems like a very senseless act of violence. That's going to wrap it up for the co-main event podcast this week, at least the proper. But remember, we'll be over at the Patreon page all week, patreon.com slash co-main event. We got the live chat on Wednesday, doing the damn thing on Thursday and the power hour on Friday. We will continue to talk about uh, Marlon Vera's upcoming fight about or with Dominic Cruz. Also, Angela Hill and Lupita uh, Gudinez in a 120-pound catchweight fight is your co-main on that UFC on ESPN card. We'll be looking ahead to UFC 278 in a couple weeks. Of course, that's the one down there in Salt Lake City. Uh, it'll be fun. We always have a good time. We'll see you over there if you dare. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Just saying, imagine when we hear the opening chords of the Blink-182 song. Are those guys from San Diego? They're from North County, but still. What was the other? Buck, Buck 09? Orthodox UFC walkout song, but I kind of like it. Oh, man, I'd be a dumb Bruce Banford. I'm <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>